Krista Collier was murdered on August 16th, 2014, and this is her mother's story. Morning the Murdered is a podcast I created because in 1999, a friend of mine was murdered. My name is Kelly, and I am your host. I saw the effects that murder have on family members, and I wanted to give a voice to the loved ones of murdered victims. Every week, I interview the family member of a murder victim. So please be sure to tune in every Thursday to hear their stories on Morning the Murdered podcast. Hello? Hi, Trina. It's Kelly calling from Morning the Murdered podcast. Hi, Kelly. How are you? I'm well. How are you? I'm good. Nitro is a city in Kanawha and Putnam counties in the state of West Virginia, United States, along the Kanawha River. The population is just over 7,000. The name Nitro derives from nitrocellulose, the main ingredient in smokeless gunpowder. This area was to be the American ammunition production facility during World War I. By the time of the armistice, they were producing 100,000 pounds of high explosives per day. The city is known as a living memorial to World War I. In February 2012, Monsanto agreed to settle a case covering dioxin contamination around a plant in Nitro that had made Agent Orange. Monsanto agreed to pay up to $9 million for cleanup of affected homes and $84 million for medical monitoring of people affected, and the community's legal fees as well. While in this city, you can visit the Nitro World War I Museum filled with artifacts and information. There is also a mall there called the Nitro Antique Mall. It is worth a stop to this mall, a place that is filled with antique toys and games, and is an interesting and unique place to shop or browse. Tell me what Krista was like as a baby and as a young child. Krista was a very adventurous, happy, not afraid of anybody, which, you know, that could have caused, (laughs) could have caused fight. Well, actually did cause issues, you know, but she, from the age of five, um, I'm from a musical family. I used to teach music, uh, piano and voice and was um, music director at two different churches. And Krista, we discovered when she was about five, could sing amazingly. She she was five, had the voice of a 12, 13-year-old. She sang in church a lot, sang uh, duets with me. She entered competitions, a lot of vocal competitions that she won. Extremely talented on the piano, just extremely... Um, musically inclined. She was just, she didn't do well in school. And I think as I look back on that, I think it was maybe she had a little bit of ADHD. Then there wasn't really a whole lot of uh, information yet about ADD or ADHD. But as I look back on it, I think that was her problem. Krista did not particularly enjoy school. And this is often the case with bright children. They aren't stimulated enough and begin to lose interest. 
In junior high, she wanted to participate in the music classes. There was a minimum grade requirement, therefore Krista knew she had to work hard to ensure her spot. Her mother, Trina, even began to see her beautiful daughter ask for help, which was a first, and made her so delighted to see that Krista was beginning to take school seriously. Her misunderstood daughter, who was beginning to participate and work hard, would now perhaps shine at school as she did at home. She was beautiful, as you can see by her picture. That, and she, she physically matured very, very young. When she, 13, 14, she, the older men would flirt with her because she looked like an 18 and 19 year old. Oh boy. So yeah. there starts one of the, the problems with her. And what did she do with her singing? Was there was there, was she part of any other groups that she sang? Or? Oh yes, she tried out when she was eleven. Indiana, that's where I'm from. I live in Alabama now, but I was born and raised until I was seventeen. Then we moved to Texas. Indiana has what they call a children's choir, and it derives of every town, city, whatever you want to county kids can try out and it's very they only select like four or five from each town city county whatever to try out Krista was invited to try out for the city that we lived or the town that we lived in the choir derived of like 250 kids and from the age of see it was 11 to 13, I believe, for the younger kids, because a lot of times younger kids don't have the, what word am I looking for, the avenue or venue to start in music classes until they get into junior high, at least one, okay? So she tried out, she had to try out four different times, and then she was notified that she was, they only selected one child from each area as the, you know, the one who would be inducted into this children's choir. And she was the one who was chosen. Tell me a little bit about that. They would, they practiced, we had to take them. I mean, one of the, when you find the concert, because they would pick different, like big high schools or auditoriums to practice them. So as a parent, you're where they were, you would have to travel twice a week for their rehearsals. Oh, what and a commitment. Then, oh. oh, it was a lot of times I fell asleep. <laughs> like, how uh, how long were their practices twice a week? Three hours. And we really thought that that would keep Krista out of trouble. Mm-hmm. So we would try everything. She didn't like playing in bands, so that was a no-go. But piano and singing was, I, I taught her voice. I even got another voice teacher to increase her range because she was an alto. So she, and to teach her how to flip into falsetto. And so between the two of us, she really, I mean, when the session, the vocal sessions would be over, she'd say, that's it? We can't go any longer? Krista found her passion. Singing, music, performing. 
At home, her family had a studio, and that is where you would find Krista at any given moment. Trina's other children were also taught piano by their talented mother. However, they would have to be cajoled into practicing. If you were in this busy household, you would tend to see them outside playing and running around, having their own kind of fun, rounding them up to practice. Whereas with Krista, it was the opposite. Trina would try to get her outside from time to time into the fresh air, away from the music studio, where Krista would sing for hours. When Trina was quite pregnant with Krista, who was her first child, her father left. Krista grew up wondering what she had done wrong for her father to leave, always apologizing to her mother, saying maybe if I wasn't born, dad wouldn't have left you. How heartbreaking to hear that, a child feeling that way. This caused Krista to have feelings of abandonment and she grew up with deep-seated insecurities, never knowing how to fill that void. The woman that Krista's father spent all those years with while she was growing up contacted Trina one day and said it is time for Krista's father to grow up and step up and be in his daughter's life. Trina couldn't have been happier that this woman came forward and encouraged the potential start of a relationship. She saw how her daughter had struggled all those years with feelings of sadness and loss. Krista always blaming herself, and we can only imagine the impact that this guilt caused her. Krista loved her family, her mother and three siblings that were all close in age, but this love never seemed to fill the void within her. So, when Krista was 13, she called her grandmother, her father's mother. I got the number... She was 13. I got the number from her grandmother. She, I said, here, Krista, do you, would you like to call? And when Krista called, when Krista called, this woman said to my daughter, I don't have a granddaughter named Krista, and I hung up on her. Mm, she did not. Yeah, that... and that was the beginning of Krista's drug problem. Oh my. So it devastated why, her. Why do you think that your ex-husband's wife, first of all, why do you think she contacted you out of the blue like that? Like you hadn't spoken because to them she wanted ever. To get to know Krista. She wanted to get she to know wanted Krista. She wanted to. Okay. Yes, and she told me she goes, You don't know me. and she is I'm still friends with her to this day. Wow. Um, you don't know me, but it's time that and Krista's dad's name was Barry Collier. But it's time that Barry steps up. Getting to know her father's family had many motivations for Trina. First and foremost, perhaps knowing her father would finally bring some peace to her daughter's angst and feelings of loss. But also, seeing the dynamics in her father's family for what they really were, Perhaps Krista would understand that it was not potentially healthy for a young girl to have grown up in that environment, relieving her of some of the loss she was feeling. What I did was um, me and Sherry, which is Krista's stepmom, decided for, wanted to know if I'd come to Arkansas. Okay. And my best friend at that time said, I'm on board, let's go. 
So we went to Arkansas. Krista was about to turn 14. So they had a little birthday party for her there. Her dad and her, he apologized to her. Oh. Um, took her shopping. We had cookouts. They, um, Sherry's family had a pool party, birthday party for her. And I really thought this is going to heal my daughter. When Krista got to become a sophomore, she met some really bad people in school. And they introduced her to pot. And what was the other one? I think it was like narcotics, like maybe Valium, Vicodin, or something like that. Finally, she was able to meet her father. She was about to turn 14 years old and they headed over there. They had a 14th birthday party for Krista. And although the day was nice, things didn't get better after that, unfortunately. Although Krista had always been a rambunctious child, she was never a lawbreaker. Well, like, you know, you, you've seen her picture. She was absolutely gorgeous, and she was very physically mature, developed very early. So she attracted these very good-looking kids that present themselves as, oh, you know, I'm going to treat you like a queen. And Krista was, because she had daddy issues, Krista was drawn to that. And right. this kid, I cannot remember his name to save my life. I've been thinking about this for a week. I only met him one time. And he played the role. He even had me convinced. Because for her 14th birthday, he bought her two dozen red roses. And he was about two years older than her, which attracted her. So the rule was, you're not allowed to date. So he had to come to the house. Or if Crystal's older sister was going out, then they could go with them. But that was it. Come to find out, I found out she was sneaking out of her house. The cops came one time with her in tow. So we put her in rehab. It's amazing the power and control at that age that friends have over kids. It's, it's especially when you're vulnerable anyway. And she absolutely. Was. And parents, this is so good that you're talking about this today because it'll really help parents to understand and really remember that children in that 14 to 18 year old age, it is such a yes. vulnerable time. And they, they are mm-hmm. so, it's, it's like they, they, the most important people in their worlds, unfortunately, are their, are their peers. It's, it's not. That's right. It is. It's their peers. Right. And they will do mm-hmm. anything that their peers are doing. So when That's the police. Right, fit in. Yes. Yes. So when, when the police showed up with her at your door, at this point, you did mm-hmm. not know she was using drugs or did you have a suspicion? No, I did know. You did know no, already. I did know. We put her in rehab. She did really well, of course. And then she gets out. She was there about three months. They First, it was only 30 days. I'm like, uh-uh, 30 days. And so everybody knows 30-day programs do not work. Because if you, what I call a rehab habitual patient, they learn how to play the game. Mm. What they have to say, how to act, how to be involved so they can get out sooner. And Krista learned that 
really quickly. And was she living in this rehab? It was like a, a like a residence yes. where she lived. Okay. Yes. Mm-hmm. So when yes. she came she home, and was she angry about going, or was she sort of? Uh, oh yeah. She was angry oh, yeah. about going. Okay. Oh, yeah. And Krista was very muscular, uh, very toned, and. Let me tell you, it was not fun getting her in that car. We had to physically put her in the car. Because her personality, when you start, as a parent, when you start noticing a shift in their personality from going to a, a child who is focused on whether it be sports, music, that is the first thing that's going to go. Krista stopped wanting to sing. She stopped wanting to play the piano. She would skip school. Any behavioral changes, you better do something. It is such a challenging time for youths between the ages of 13 and 18. Friends become such a priority for them, and they are so vulnerable and often will do anything to fit in. Their peers can be the most important people in their world. Choosing the circle of people they hang out with can ultimately be one of the most important decisions they can make. And they're not ready to make decisions like that at that age. Parents can struggle with how best to direct their teens, and it can be near impossible for them to redirect them to new social circles. When Krista came home, things seemed really good for about a month or so. And then it all started over again. But this time, her behavior was worse than before. Trina had mixed feelings. She was cautiously optimistic, always hopeful that things would improve for her daughter, that her love and support would be enough, but knowing that it wouldn't. This would be a lot of hard work, shuffling through all of the feelings Krista had that she had to sort through. Trina decided to homeschool her precious daughter, doing anything she possibly could to prevent her from being in a situation that would cause her any setbacks. But, as she knew, she could only do so much. And she did everything she could think of. From the first sign of a problem, she had packed her daughter up and sent her to rehab, trying to get her the help she needed. The daughter she loved so much and wanted nothing but the best for The daughter she knew was bright and talented and could do anything she set her mind to. Trina set her daughter up for success in all aspects of her life and was there for her, standing right beside her during these troubling times as well, ready to fight for her and ensure she would be helped. Even during the days that her daughter could be verbally abusive, it barely bothered Trina. She just wanted her daughter back and was willing to do anything to make that happen. After she went to rehab the second time, um, she really learned how to play the system. Mm. Oh, yes, I want help. Oh, I'll do anything. I want to get well. I don't want to deal with this. I want to have a music career. She learned real quick. Right. So after... 30 days, even though I begged them to keep her longer, they said, no, she's fine. No, she has to go. We need the bed. Krista began running away. And Trina would beg the police to arrest her daughter, put her in juvenile detention, pleading with the officers, saying, this is my daughter. Help me. 
I mean, I would beg the police, arrest her, put her in juvie. This is my daughter we're talking about. And all they would say to me, well, if she gets caught stealing or, you know, uh, hurt somebody or anything, he said, since she's a minor, you're going to be the one who's going to be arrested. Oh, my goodness. And I said, yeah, I said, wait a minute. I ask you to come to my house for help. And instead of helping me, you're threatening me. The system is flawed. When a mother is asking for help, pleading, begging, all she is asking for is support from the people that should be there for her. Offer services that could be beneficial to her family. Show empathy for a mother that is desperate to see to her daughter's health and safety. The police would not help. I never understand this. A family asking for help doesn't get it. Instead, the police often dismiss families where drugs are involved, implying that they don't deserve the same kindness and support that others may, implying that the family with a drug-addicted child is somehow not as important. Looking down on someone who is drug-addicted, on their families as though blaming them for poor parenting. And here, you have a mother who is doing everything she can to help her child even calling the police for help. And yet still there is judgment. When parents ask for help, you would think the police officer should help. Trina would go to the police station when her daughter would run away crying and no one seemed to care. Is society so uneducated about drug addiction that we should ignore the pleas of a mother whose child is missing? So shameful. At home, Trina was also dealing with so much, trying desperately to stay on top of everything. She still had three other children who needed her love and support, her guidance, and, well, just plain her. She worked. It was a terrible time in her life. Krista, the last rehab she went into, I think this was the fourth. The last one she was into, she was 17 about to turn 18. I think it was like two weeks shy of being 18. She gets out and I'm bringing her home and she's you know, telling me what everything a parent wants to hear, but I knew it was bogus. I just knew it was the same old, just a different day. And she was home two weeks. Well, this time she ran away. She went to a bus station, hiked to a bus station got into a family with some man. Luckily, he was a good man, and she took off to West Virginia. And that's where she died. This time, when Krista ran away, Trina didn't hear from her for three months. She thought her daughter was dead. She was desperate with worry. Krista finally called. Trina fell to the floor and bawled her eyes out. The daughter she missed and worried about constantly was okay. The relief flooded through her in waves. Krista said she was happy and in a good relationship and had a job working in a chicken place. Her boyfriend was taking care of his mom, and she had a mother she was taking care of. His mother adored Krista. 
Krista felt needed and loved, which filled a void within her from her dad's abandonment. She gave her mom the phone number and address where she lived. Trina was so hopeful for her daughter. Krista lived there for 10 years or so. She and her boyfriend never got married, but lived together and were considered common law. They had two children together and seemed to have a happy life. Honestly, and this is the God-honest truth, I always had a premonition from the time Krista started having all these issues, and I think it was a God moment. I had a premonition that one day I was going to get a knock on my door. And two police officers were going to tell me that she was dead. And that's exactly what happened. Once Krista's boyfriend's grandmother and mother died, that's when the fighting started. Drug addiction is so powerful that when you are an addict, it is the place you fall back to when the times get tough. Krista had her second child, a daughter. And when this baby was only three weeks old... Krista left. She went to this town called Dunbar, West Virginia, not too far from Nitro, where they live. But it's a drug city, basically. Town, whatever you want to call it. I've been there. And she just, that was it. That was it. She got addicted to heroin. I believe crack cocaine, but I'm not sure. She started prostituting herself. You name it, she did it. And she ended up in rehab there uh, three times, I believe, and she ended up in jail, which I was honestly, this may sound crazy, but I was happy she was in jail because at least I knew she was alive. And that's when she would write me all the time and call me all the time. And I have all of those letters. I knew to keep them. Trina was terrified when Krista got out of jail and she begged her to come home, dreadfully worrying that Krista was going to get herself in troubling and dangerous situations. Trina wanted Krista close to home during this stressful time in her life, having her nearby, helping to keep her safe. Krista had lost custody of her children at this point, but she still wanted to stay there to be close to them nonetheless. Their father raised them and was allowing Krista's mother to have a relationship with them of sorts. Krista's daughter, Trina's granddaughter, just had her first child, born on her birthday. Her great-grandson. What a spectacular birthday gift. Tell me about the horrible moment that you found out that your daughter had been murdered. How did you find out and what happened? Okay, so the last time I talked to Krista was August 9th of 2014. And then we didn't hear from her anymore. So they assumed that Krista was murdered around August 16th based on the forensic and autopsy. So we are pretty sure, you know, the detectives and me are pretty sure that whoever murdered her knew that that was a drug house. So they knew where to take her. So they obviously were people that she probably bought drugs from. Don't know. I'm just assuming because of the house. On the third floor, 
of this house left her there. And by the position of her body, and I don't want to be too graphic, her hands were behind her body, tucked under her bra. So the detective said she was either drugged there, and they could tell that she had been drugged up the stairs to be put in this room. Or she was put in a car and then drugged from the sidewalk up into this house. So fast forward to September, it was like September 19th. Now, keep in mind, we didn't know yet. We just thought Krista had done one of her disappearing acts again. She would go without contacting, and she would always use a cell phone that you could not track. Mm -hmm. Because at this point, she didn't want us to find her. And really, honestly, since she was an adult, there was nothing we could have done anyway. Of course not. Because you lose all rights. Yes. As far as a minor is concerned, she wasn't a minor anymore. So your hands are basically tied. So we didn't know yet. September 19th, this couple were walking their dog past this house and smelled an odor. And they said that it was an odor that they knew something was wrong. So they called the police. It was on the news. You probably can find it. Mm. But it was on the news. <clears throat> and she had been laid up there, and that's one reason they were kind of able to tell about the timeline of her being murdered and then being found. Murdered around August 16th, found on September 19th. So oh, she was up there for four weeks. So by this time, the decomposition was great. So when they got her to forensics, they had a very hard time getting a fingerprint. October 29th, I was working from home. My husband always came home for lunch. And my daughter, my youngest daughter, had been there that day doing laundry. And as she was exiting the front door, there was a detective's car from Mobile saying, please call this number. It's urgent. So my husband said, I'll go back to work and I'll call him. So he did, and about an hour later, he called me, and he said, they're coming over at 5 o'clock. I said, what do you mean? Why? He said, well, they wouldn't stay. They just, they just asked if I was going to be home at 5. And he said, do you think this is about Krista? And when he said that, I knew she was dead. So I called my other kids. I called my sister. Everybody in, in my immediate family had told them what was going on. And, of course, they lived out of state. And my other kids live in Indiana. I didn't call Eric. No, Eric was the one who gave them my number. So he already knew. But I think the cops maybe asked him, let, let us handle it. Okay. Oh, I see. So 5 o'clock, I had to quit work. I knew. I was just waiting. It was like they couldn't get there fast enough. And my youngest daughter, she called them and said, I'm going over to my mom. I need to know if my sister is dead. And she said, please, please, please tell me. And they said, yes, she was murdered. No, yes, she's dead. So about the, the two cops, the two cops, like I always had a premonition about. And 
I get up and I go to the foyer and they walked in and my husband was crying. Carol was crying. So I knew, and I just looked at him. I said, please don't tell me what I think they're going to tell me. And they did. And I just, I hit the floor and I screamed. I know my neighbors heard me. I didn't care. I just could not believe that I, I buried a kid. I'm having to bury a kid. The police gave her the number for the detective, and she was told they had a hard time getting a cause of death because of the decomposition. So they sent her to the Smithsonian Institute Forensic Department in D.C. It took another, oh, I don't know, two or three weeks before we got the autopsy report. By that time, I had gotten a West Virginia that said manner of death, homicide, cause of death, blunt force trauma to the head, to the back of the head and to the side of her head. Krista's blood work was clean. The detectives feel Krista was likely murdered elsewhere and dragged to the house she was found in. The police used luminol, and they couldn't find blood anywhere there at the location where her body was found, but they could see drag marks. Someone came forward to help with the investigation. He got wired up to help them with the case, and when he went to the meeting with the suspect in the murder of Krista Collier, the tape recorder slipped, so there was nothing the detectives could hear clearly enough to use as information against this person. It seems to the detectives that at least two people would have been involved in Krista's murder, as they say one person could not have brought her upstairs in the manner she was found. Krista's mother knows that someone knows something. It has been six years already, and it is so challenging for her to live with the murder of her child, along with the unknown of who did this to the daughter she loves so much. She feels the detectives have shelved the case. They did an interview with Trina at one point. It was to be on the news to get exposure for the case. During the interview, Trina got the all-too-familiar feeling from the officers that her daughter was being dismissed as a drug addict. Although both coroner reports clearly state Krista was murdered, the reporter asked, what would you say to other parents that have lost their child to drugs? Trina did not like the implication that her daughter died from a drug overdose. The interview was supposed to be to get someone to come forward with information on her daughter's murder. She didn't see the relevance of her drug use. Krista was murdered. Every murder is devastating to their loved ones. And Trina deserves the respect of the professionals, not only the police, but the media as well. Such an ignorant and insensitive question. And of course, Trina has to deal with detectives that make her feel that they don't care about her case because Krista was a drug addict. They make her feel her daughter's murder isn't as important as others. It seems to be a common theme when someone uses drugs being dismissed by the authorities as though their lives don't matter, as though their families don't love and miss them in the same way as a parent whose child didn't use drugs. What an incredibly archaic way of thinking. When is this going to change? 
Police need training on drug addiction and understanding and empathy toward the families, treating them the same way as any other murder victim's family. Trina has asked for a new detective. I am happy to hear that, as every murder is important and shouldn't be dismissed. What did you do afterward, sort of, you know, to get through your the early days after you found out your daughter had been murdered? How how did you move forward? What did you do? God, okay. my church, yes, my Good. family. I I joined a grief group on Facebook. A couple of them actually. I started two different pages on Facebook for Krista. One's called Murder and Dunbar, and the other one is called um, Justice for Krista. And I mean, everything that I could think of, constantly emailing the detectives, constantly calling him. Half the time, he doesn't return my calls anymore. You, you know, you, if I lived in West Virginia, they'd probably arrest me hmm. because I'd be camping out in front of the stupid office. We were all raised in church. I raised all my kids in church. I'm very involved. You know, success. My sister's successful. My my other sister, my older sister, was an amazing piano. We were educated. But people think any person who is on drugs comes from low life mm-hmm. families who are in poverty. That's not true. It hits every spectrum of families it doesn't matter drugs don't discriminate no they don't they do not but i wish everybody would understand that if you have anybody in your family that's on drugs there is a reason they started it's not because they just thought one day hey you know what i'm gonna start using drugs it doesn't work that way something triggers them that is shattering to them and they just want to medicate themselves. Our celebration will, will really be when I when her killers are found. That will be our biggest celebration. Because, I mean, I know she's well. I know um, she's whole again. But we aren't. We are not. And so one thing I've done, Krista was a big animal lover. Big animal lover. We all have been. I started a dog rescue called Port City Hope Animal Rescue here in Mobile, and I I did it because I used to volunteer for different foundations and stuff for animals. And I'm like, that is one thing I know that Krista, if she was alive, would love to be involved with. And so I kind of did that in her memory. And once we get a facility, right now we're called what they call foster-based, meaning we don't have a facility yet, and we have fosters that take care of our our babies. Once we get a facility, though, that Krista's name will be on it. Trina has very good friends, and she feels blessed and lucky to have them, two of whom were with her that day when I interviewed her. They are there for her when she needs to vent, She tries not to talk about her tragedy too much because it puts her in a bad headspace. For Krista's funeral, they couldn't put her in a coffin. She had to be cremated. 
she is in an urn at home. And when her mother dusts the urn, it is near impossible for her to process that her daughter is actually in there. And she often relies on her husband to move her daughter's urn while she's dusting. And she feels very thankful that he is always there for her as well. Krista is desperately missed by her family. And her mother has put so much effort and still does into helping solve the murder of her daughter. She is an incredible woman. She works very hard every day and thinks about her daughter and misses her. You know, because when we first got her back, all I could do was hug it. I mean, I just, I just hugged it. And, you know, so you, you just go through days where you're good and then something will trigger me. It could be somebody that looks like her. Right. You know, it could be a child who looked like her when she was little. Just odd things. Or if I see something in the store that only she liked. We, Krista, I know, would not want anybody to go through the hell she went through. Because she still had dreams and goals. Of course she did. She just couldn't beat it. She just could I remember one time she asked me a couple of years or a couple of years before she died, Mom, what was I like as a child? Mm. What did I like? What I she doesn't remember. Right. She doesn't remember she did not remember. Don't you remember us sitting at that big um church and, and you got a standing ovation when you were six with the first time you sang? She didn't remember. Mm. That's what drugs do. I just want people to remember my daughter when she was well. I don't want people to remember her or talk to me like, oh, I'm so sorry she was on drugs. Stop it. That wasn't Krista. Yeah, so for you, you think back and you, you remember her as she was singing on stage and getting a standing yes. ovation. Yes, that's, that's what I do. That's how I cope a All lot. Right. You know, I my husband doesn't even know how often I lose it, right? Because I'm trying to put up, I'm I'm begging and I'm praying, God, please bring these people forward. You know, and He will. Yeah, He will. It might not be on my timetable. Thank you so much for doing this and what you do. Oh, it's very rare. It, it you know, honestly, this is going to help me. This is going to help me because it's going to make me feel like somebody else that has cares about my daughter. Um, So thank you for what you do because there's not very many people that do this. Okay. So you keep doing what you're doing because you're going to help a lot of people. Well, I'm not being, I'm not being, you know, whatever. I'm being truthful. When you first contacted me, I'm like, wow, somebody wants to talk about Krista. (laughs) it touched me to the core. It really did. So maybe other people don't tell you, but trust me, when they hang up that phone, there, it helps. It helps. Thank you. I really appreciate that. And thank you for being on the podcast today. And I hope you have a good end to your day. Thank you for asking me. Yes. You have a good day too. Thank you. You take care. Okay. Okay. I'll talk to you later. Okay. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye-bye. I'd like to thank everyone for being here this week. 
I have been getting such amazing feedback from the families that tell their stories here. This is all thanks to you, our listeners. I greatly appreciate your support and dedication to Mourning the Murdered. While producing the podcast, I need many tools to be able to bring you quality content each week. I now have an affiliate link with Amazon. And by simply clicking on the link before you make your Amazon purchases, you are helping to support my podcast. Once you click on the link, you will be redirected to your Amazon page, ordering as you normally would. There are no extra costs and no fees. Just go to my website, morningthemurderedpodcast.com, and click on the affiliate link. You can also, as always, support the podcast by sending a one-time PayPal contribution, or through Patreon, you can donate as little as $1 a month. All of the links can be found on morningthemurderedpodcast.com. So your help is only one click away. I'm not quite sure how people move on after a tragedy. There are support groups online and face-to-face, and there are books and family and friends to lean on. But in reality, when someone loses a loved one to murder, they lose a piece of themselves that can never be returned. Memories are all that are left. So talk about your loved one. And let the world know how important they will be to you forever. These memories become valuable treasures. No one will ever understand your pain, but surround yourself with those that can understand how important it is for you to share your story. I will now light a candle for the victim and their loved ones, ensuring their memory lives on and burns brightly. You are remembered. I want to take a moment and extend my most sincere and humble gratitude to each and every one of you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you have any questions, or if you would like your voice to be heard on Morning the Murdered and tell the story of your loved one, email me at morningthemurdered at gmail.com. That's M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G-T-H-E. M-U-R-D-E-R-E-D at gmail.com Thank you to Dennis for editing this podcast. You are absolutely indispensable. Thank you so much. A huge shout out to Patrick for creating the original music that you hear. And the artwork for this podcast was created by Talia with support from Matt and Mick. Thanks so much, guys. Thanks.